which is going to be John chapter 9 by Pastor Murray. Thank you, Pastor Adrian, and welcome everyone here and online as we get into John chapter 9. As we do, I'd like to start by going back to the, the end, to John chapter 21. Thanks. John 21. Just recall what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we covered the, uh, uh, the recap of John 1 to 7. And that's in verse 24. This is the disciple, John 21, verse 24, who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. We know that his testimony is true. So again, we, re- we talked about the Gospel of John, written near the end of the first century, long after uh, all of the, the apostles, and likely most of, if not all of the witnesses, had long gone. We, we don't know for sure whether all of the witnesses to Christ's uh, birth, death, and resurrection uh, were dead. Uh, most of them would have been, though, for sure. Uh, and definitely all of the apostles. So John here, many years later, was writing an airtight case about what he describes in verse 31 of chapter 20. And this was the airtight case that he wanted to make, that you may believe that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and the belief on these two facts, we may have life in his name. So recall that that's what we were talking about when we covered, uh, did the review of the first seven chapters. What I'd like to do today is go back to John 9 and cover the sixth sign. We know that John, John used seven signs or miracles to prove his point and the teachings that came off of those miracles and those signs were to provide an airtight case to what we just talked about in John 20 and 21. We, the fifth sign, we've, we've taken a break from the signs because Christ here, or John in his presentation, deals with some teaching that we've gone through in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. Now he goes back to the use of another sign here in chapter 9. And we'll pick it up there. But what I'd like to do today is kind of take a holistic look at chapter 9. It's interesting that uh, as in the, 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 the dividing up of the chapters, chapter 9 deals with the entire sign. I'd like to take a bit of a holistic view, not necessarily completely line by line, as Christ uses this sign to address the subject of Israel's blindness. This is what he was going to address now. And, he, and as we have seen, he is leading up to, he's continuing to, go deeper and deeper to poke the bear a little, a little bit more, to get under their skin a little bit more, to, to reveal where they are completely missing what they thought they had completely understood from the Hebrew Scriptures. And as a reminder here, where we are in John 9, the timeline remains the same back to John 7. John 7, when we picked it up in verse 37, talks about the last the, that day, the last great day of the feast, when we then go into chapter 8, it's the following morning. He still gathers at the temple. Uh, chapter 50, or verse 59 of chapter 8, 
then he took up stones to throw at them, but Jesus hid himself at the end of chapter 8 and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And verse chapter 9 continues, so now as Jesus passed by, so it's the same day, and we'll see here later in verse 16 that it's a Sabbath. It's likely, likely the eighth day of the feast based off of off of the fact that uh, uh this goes right back to John 7:37, and historically, there was the feast never moved from a Friday to a Friday. So, because the following morning they were at the temple and it was a Sabbath, when you continue following through here, this is likely still the eighth day of the feast. The the ceremony, the water libation ceremony that we see in John 7, was likely in the evening as the as the eighth day started, likely. But it is at least a, a weekly Sabbath, but likely the end, the high annual Sabbath that closes the Feast of Tabernacles, because we see the time frame going through here. And as we, before we get into John 9, I'd like to take you back to Luke 4 to remind us what Christ had said at the beginning of his ministry. Luke chapter 4. Beginning of verse 17, we'll read verses 17 through 20. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is in Isaiah 61, as, as, we, as we know it now, but they would have unrolled the, the scroll to this spot. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You recall that this fulfillment in his first coming was only the partial fulfillment of Isaiah 61. But in part here, we see here that he, was, he came to deal with the recovery of sight to the blind. And that's where John picks up the, his presentation and his, his testimony here with the sixth sign. So let's jump into that back in John chapter 9 and continue here. Verses 1 and 2 is where we'll start. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. That's important here. He was blind from birth. Not just any blindness. Not he had wasn't that he'd lived 18 years and then developed uh, cataracts and was blind. He was blind from birth. He had never seen a speck of light for his entire existence. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Can you see the error in logic here? There's a bit of a logical error here. And it affects us, too. This error in logic here is called a false dichotomy, that there are only two possible options. The disciples here, those who are following him here, in their their, their false understanding of how they have been taught through the rabbis, was that blindness and sickness was the result of somebody's sin, and that was the only possibility. That's how it was taught. It was either it was either this man sinned, or because he was blind from birth, he obviously couldn't have sinned himself, so he was obviously paying the repercussions of his parents' sin. When we get into false dichotomies, and we often, it's, it is a human tendency to, when you think you understand something, to limit your options to either what you believe or what you don't believe, or the opposite, that it is either this way or this way. When we do that, it limits our ability to learn and impedes our path to wisdom. 
We all do this. We do this here in the church of, in the church of God. We do it as human beings in the world. When we think we know something, our minds close to other possibilities, like blinders on a horse. When you consider a horse that has blinders on, he's not completely blind, but he certainly is very limited to this section of his of his eyesight. He, he can't turn around and see what's coming from the side or behind. The better question would have been, Rabbi, why has this man been blind from birth? That's the better question. That doesn't presuppose any conclusions. So as we as we learn and as we continue to dig into Scripture, take a lesson from these two verses that open up your question to possibilities so that we don't always presuppose a, a condition here. They had assumed that this man was had sinned, or perhaps it was his parents. The better question, why was this man blind from birth? To which Christ would have said, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. He did answer this question in verse 3, where he said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God may be revealed in him. So this man was blind from birth for the sole purpose of leading up to this very point in time that Christ could teach his disciples, make a point to the rabbis, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees about something dealing with blindness. As we continue here, uh, verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We know, and we won't dig too deeply into, into this part of the text, feel free to do that yourself, but Christ obviously is the light of the world. We see that in, in many other areas. Without him, we are in a state of darkness. So much so that Christ is the light of the world that in Revelation 22, we recall in the New Jerusalem, there will be no need of sun in the New Jerusalem itself, that there will be no need of the sun. In verse 5 of Revelation 22, we read, And there shall be no night there in the New Jerusalem where Christ and God are present. They need no lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So when we consider this as he's introducing this concept of blindness, he's also including the fact that he is the light to the world. He's coming to shine something to the world, to, to shine the light on God's law and God's way and on his plan for redemption of mankind through his covenant with Israel. So that then sets up the stage for the sign itself, which we come to in verse 6. When he had seen these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. That, in essence, right there, that is the sign. Everything else is the lead up to it, the interaction afterwards, and the lesson that John wanted to establish here in this airtight testimony. Recall that he had just preached to them the previous evening from the rivers of living water, which was at the pool of Siloam. He was, he was there in John 7, verse 37. That's where, he, that's where he had preached from, those rivers, the pool of Siloam. There says, let's take a break here and let's look at the significance of this pool of Siloam. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 8. 
And this was, as, as we do, recall that they were very familiar with these Hebrew scriptures. This is what Christ was trying to portray here, that they should have seen this coming from a mile away, and they couldn't see it. But it was right before them. It was, it was right here plain before them in their, in their scriptures. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6. Verses 6 to 8, we will read. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in Rezin and in Ramalia's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria in all his glory. He will go up over his channels and go over all the banks, and he will pass through Judah, and he will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Again, this is referring in part to Assyria's invasion of Israel, but look at the 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 how God deals with here, how Isaiah deals with the waters of Shiloh, which is the, the which is the waters of uh, Siloam. For context, let's figure out where he's talking about here. Let's go back to Second Chronicles 32. Second Chronicles 32 gives us a little bit more insight into this pool of Siloam. And it was created and made by Hezekiah back in Second Chronicles 32. We'll see what he did here in verse 30. This same Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 32, verse 30, this same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. So there was this spring called uh, Gihon, and Hezekiah cut a tunnel through that, that he allowed the spring to come into the city of Jerusalem. And it formed... And then he formed this pool, which is where these waters would come through. And he created this tunnel that formed this pool of Siloam, where a lot of these water rituals then ended up occurring. So we can see this significance of this pool that Christ is sending the blind man to. to have the, once, once he creates the spittle, creates the clay out of the, the dirt in his spit, and he puts it on his eyes... He then tells them to go off into this pool where they naturally would go for healing and for washings. Let's go back to John 3. Before we go to John 9, let's go back to John 3. Uh, look, back to John. Let's go to John 9 first. Sorry, John 9. Sorry. Interestingly enough, also, this Gahon Spring was known as the Virgin's Fountain. It was known as the Virgin's Fountain. I don't know if it was known as the Virgin's Fountain beforehand or afterwards, but the Jews referred to it, this this spring that was diverted into the Pool of Siloam, as the Virgin's Fountain. And also, interestingly enough, Gahon was also one of the four rivers that came out of Eden, uh, the one of the initial four rivers that came out of Eden. Not likely the same one. It was, a different, it was probably, probably in a different spot, uh, because um, that was down near Cush, further south. But just for interest's sake, we see this Gahon Spring was diverted into this pool of Siloam. Back in John 9, 
when he hit verse 8, or, uh, sorry, verse 7. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So this, the, when he referred to the pool of Siloam, it actually meant, he meant the word sent, which is significant here as well, because let's go back to John 3. And this is where Christ is bringing all of these things together in the writings, in the Torah, in the, the Psalms, in what he has already been preached for the previous time that he has been on the, leading up to this, that he's been saying these things over and over and over again. And they've completely ignored it, missed it, haven't seen it, haven't understood it. So when he is sending them to the pool called Sent, we see in John 3, verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. We know Christ was the one that was sent. As the as the anointed one, as the Messiah, he was the one that was sent. So in essence, what we are seeing here is he was sending him to himself. That's the that's the that's the lesson Christ was trying to teach them. That this this pool that had been created back in Hezekiah's time, by the one who sat then on the throne of David. And this water that was diverted through a tunnel that was created into this pool that they had used for all of these ceremonial washings. He was really pointing them to himself. that they And they couldn't see the, the symbolism there. He was using their precious water to show them that they were blinded to the very meaning that the prophet Isaiah had tried to teach them. And when you go back to Isaiah and I read that context that we read, we can see Christ there in those teachings. Figuratively, Christ was sending the man to himself for complete and total healing because that was the point. That was, that was the point. He was God. He was the Son of God. And when we read back in John 1, he links that right back to creation. Interestingly enough here, now that we're in, in John 9 again, we talk about the clay. That he anointed, verse 7 says, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. There's some indication by scholars that clay was used to help alleviate eye infections at the time. There's some indication through scholars that that was one of the remedies they used then for eye infections. So perhaps he was touching on that understanding that they thought they had. But this goes much deeper than this. Let's go back to Genesis 2 and verse 7. Genesis 2 and in verse 7. Recall what he was trying to say, how he was methodically going through this airtight testimony, starting back in John 1 where we talked about linking him right back to creation, that he was there with God, he was God, and it was through him that God made everything. Genesis 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This man was blind from birth. He never had fully functioning eyes, for whatever reason. He never had fully functioning eyes. He had already made man from the clay of the ground. Eyes are no problem at all. So whether he used this as an anointing, or he actually fashioned new eyes and put them in his uh, in his head, 
this is the cre- this is the creator god and this was what he was this was what is where we will leap off from here this is that lesson he was trying to say why he used this sign that he used this clay and with the clay whether again whether it was an anointing and he miraculously developed eyes or whether he actually fashioned eyes and put them right in his head we don't know but clay this wasn't the first time he's he had fashioned anything from clay Verse 8, we'll, we'll proceed here a little quickly here. Verses 8 through 12. Therefore the neighbors and those who had previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He's like him. So now we start to have some questions here. This guy's been here forever. He's been, he's been a beggar here. This is all he can do is beg for handouts. It certainly looks like him. Others said, No, then we're pretty sure this is him. The healed blind man said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How are your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Of note here in verse 11, what I want us to to notice here, a man called Jesus this. What we're going to see is the progression from blindness to belief. This is part of what John is going to teach here. The progression from blindness to belief. So pay attention there when he, in verse 11, says, this man named Jesus made clay and put it on my eyes. Told me to go down to the pool of Siloam. I washed it off and I could see. We have here one more eyewitness for the Messiahship of Christ. Literally, an eyewitness for the Messiahship of Christ. Now we'll get into this section in verses 13 through 34. We're going to read this and make some comments along the way. This exchange that we see here in verses 13 through 34 sets up the conclusion that John comes to at the end of this, which is why he notes this entire incident. And it begins here with this this exchange here, in verse 13. So we have this healed man. There's some indication. Now there's some questioning. Is this the guy? Is this not the guy? It certainly looks like him. So they brought him, who was formerly blind, to the Pharisees. Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And if you've been following along in our John studies, the Sabbath here was a pivotal teaching point. It wasn't the first time Christ used the Sabbath for that pivotal teaching point. And they, then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. So he's simply stating the facts. There's no, there's no indication that of his belief yet, the healed man. He simply, they asked him what happened. They said, He put clay on my eyes, I washed in the pool of Siloam, and I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. This is the same false dichotomy that we started out the chapter with. In their blindness, and this is where where when we presuppose things, it limits our vision. 
this false dichotomy that they found themselves in. He can't be God because he healed on the Sabbath. And our understanding and our rules that we have set and our interpretation of the scriptures is this is work on the Sabbath. So therefore, you know what? Even if it is a miracle, it can't be because it wouldn't, God would not have done this on the Sabbath. We can see the, these aren't even horse blinders. These are so narrow tunnel vision that they have here. Let's continue. Others said, how can a man who was a sinner do such, do such signs? And there was division among them. This is significant. Others were beginning to question. Listen, we've been hearing this for years from these same folks. And so far we haven't had any evidence. But right now, seeing this, seeing a man who we know has been blind from birth, have clay put on his eyes, and all of a sudden he can see. We haven't seen this before. This isn't the Pool of Siloam. We've seen lots of people going to the Pool of Siloam for washings. I'm starting to question with what what I have been hearing from these leaders is actually true. Their authority, and here's where their anger starts to arise here, is their authority is beginning to crack with the weight of this evidence. Verse 17, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? Okay, so who is this guy? What happened? This guy named Jesus spat on the ground, made some clay, dapped it on my eyes, told me to go wash, and I was all of a sudden I could see. So what, what do you think about him? He's a prophet. He's now no longer the man Jesus. As he's starting to process this, He's at least a prophet. I don't know yet, but he's at least a prophet. He's not the prophet yet that we read about in Deuteronomy, but he's at least a prophet. So the wheels are turning. Verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. So now we're going right back to whether he was actually blind. It, this can't be. So therefore, he probably wasn't blind at all. So let's go right back to the beginning. We're going to go see his parents. You know what? That's okay, because that, that's Torah-related. We need some witnesses here. Was this guy blind? This goes right back to Torah. Let's find his parents. There's two, two most reliable witnesses. We'll see what they say. And recall... Oh, let's continue here first before we go back there. And they asked them, so the, the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, asked his parents, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see now? His parents answered them, and recall the power that these, this group held sway over these people, who they were now starting to, there were some cracks in that power. We know that this is our son. So we fully attest this is our son. This is, this is the one we, we, that we gave birth to. We raised. He is our son. And we assure you he was born blind. But by what means he now sees? I don't know. We have no idea. Watch their reaction versus his reaction. Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. You know what? He's of age. 
Go ask him yourself. If your son that had been blind from birth was healed, they were in such fear of these people. They wanted, they did not want to cross them. So they threw their son, their newly healed son, under the bus. I don't know what I would have done, but I'd have ran, jumping for joy. Who knows what we would have done? They threw him under the bus. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And you did not want excommunication. That was that was high on the list of, of don't wants, so to speak. Recall what we read in Matthew 24, we've read several times, of the betrayal that would happen within the body. And that was, that was, Christ was seeing that before his very eyes. Matthew 24 verse 9, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Brothers, we read other places where mothers and fathers will betray. Here is an example that they were in such fear of these, of these leaders that they didn't even want to claim it was a miracle. That's ours. He can see, but that's as far as we're going to go. We will only attest to the fact that, yes, he's our son, yes, he was blind, and yes, he can see. What happened beyond that? Go ask him yourself. We We don't want to go there. So you can see the fear they had. They, of all people, should have been the first to profess the miracle of Christ. But they were so stone cold. We'll continue on here. Verse 24. So again, they go back to the healed man. So again, they called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory, but this man, he's a sinner. Okay, so the evidence we have here seems to say that it probably is a miracle. So, okay, we will give our God the glory, but this guy here, this Jesus... He doesn't get any of the credit here. We, there's no, there's not, there's not enough evidence to give him the credit. This was some miracle somehow that God performed through the pool of Siloam, likely maybe the clay, but it certainly wasn't this guy. It certainly wasn't this guy. They had to relent that this was a miracle from God, but it was, certainly wasn't Christ. He answered in verse 25 and said, "Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know." So this is the blind man. The now seeing blind man that is first was with uh, first saw him as a man, then saw him as a prophet, and now we're starting to see his the the wheels of belief turning. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. What I do know is I was blind and now I can see. That's enough for me. If we can see his how he just simply limits it to that. Listen, I was blind and now I can see. Now I can see. They said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This sounds eerily, and I I don't want to keep going back to what we're seeing on the news these days, but this sounds eerily like what we're seeing on the news in the U.S. today. We're just going to repeat, because we don't want to believe something, we're just going to keep repeating the same questions over and over and over again. He answered them in verse 27 and said, I told you already. Are you not listening? It's very simple. He made spittle. He made clay, put it on my eyes, told me to go wash, and I can see. Nothing more. That that's exactly what happened. And you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Now watch him, watch the process now. We've talked about man, then this is a prophet. He's now becoming a follower in his mind. Because he says to them, do you also want to become disciples of his? Do you want to start following him too? Because I'm believing now. Do Do you want to join me in following him as a disciple? You can imagine there, right? You can imagine what this did. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. It goes back to what we heard in John 8 and in the previous cases of John. Listen, you can follow him, but these Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, David, they're greater. This is what we base all our belief system on. You can be his disciple, that's fine. We will stay and be a disciple of Moses. And we see the superiority of Moses. They continue to invoke the superiority of the Hebrew prophets and the patriarchs. We know, verse 29, that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Let's take a a little bit here, because we see as for fellow is in italics. So this was put in by the translators to make the sentence flow a little bit here. Let's pick this apart here just for a second. We know that God spoke to Moses. This, we do not know where he is from. That's how it should be read, without the italicized words. That word this, we covered uh, several uh, weeks ago, we covered in one another message the, the grammar of conjunctions. This this is really an adversative conjunction, which is equivalent to the word but. And when we use these conjunctions, we either use them for uh, to link something together or to contrast something. And this is because it's adversative. What, he, what uh, they are doing here is they are drawing the line in the sand by saying, we know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know about him. We're with God. We don't know about this guy. In fact, we're pretty sure, we're confident, he's not from God. That's what that's, and that's significant here. As for this fellow sort of waters it down a little bit, when we understand that word, this is really an adversative uh, conjunction. It shows the, the dichotomy of their belief. God, yes. This guy, no. And recall the whole purpose of what John is writing here is to show that Christ is absolutely yes from God. Yes, Messiah. Yes, the one sent. We see here again, verse 30 to 34, the progression from man to prof, to a prophet to someone worthy of following to this. The man answered them and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing. I've been, I've got eyes now. Why, why are you so stone cold about this? Can you not see the marvel of having new eyes? That you do not know where he is from? That's, that's where you're, that's what we're going to get into an argument about is where did he come from? I have new eyes. Yet he has opened my eyes. Notice that phrase. Not just opened his eyes, but see the progression here. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of his and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of 
that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. We have never heard of this before. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. So now he's no longer a man. He's no longer a prophet. He's no longer worthy of being a disciple. He is from God. And and that is how his eyes were opened. His eyes were opened to the fact that I'm in the presence of someone who came from God. He was sent by God. He has opened my eyes. Brings to, brings to mind Job at the end of his at the end of his ordeal. I thought I, I thought I could see, but now I I thought I, I thought I could see. I had eyes, but now I can actually see. And that is what this healed blind man is undergoing. This new disciple of Christ. Now we know, verse 31, let's touch touch up here a little bit. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. It's important to make sure we understand this in context. God does not hear sinners does not refer to repentant sinners. It does not. Re- he's not referring that God doesn't hear repentant sinners. But he's referring to people leading lives of willful sin because that was what he was trying to throw out in front of them is that they thought they were followers of God. They were leading lives of willful sin. And we see this in, let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. Hold your place there. Recall what he said here. We know that God does not hear sinners. He's referring back. How does he know this? He knows this because that's what's taught in the Torah. That's what's taught back here. That's what the the prophets who expounded on the Torah taught. We'll see an example of this in Isaiah 1, verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. It's referring to wicked Judah. Even though you may make many prayers, when God's people, and these are this was these covenant people had turned their, their back on God, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear, and your hands are full of blood. When our hearts are not in it, God doesn't hear our prayers. And they knew this because it was in the writings of the prophets. Back to John 9. This is how he can say, we know that God doesn't hear unrepentant, willful sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he'll hear him. And that was that was taught by Isaiah as well. All of that leads then to this final part of this chapter, beginning in verse 35, 34. We, let's cut, well, let's finish. Actually, we didn't cover. Uh, so verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. We covered that. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and you're teaching us? And they cast him out. This was their blind superiority complex that they had, that this new believer instantly became a follower of Christ, and he got it. He was making, he was connecting some dots. I've been taught this by, by the rabbis, that God doesn't hear sinners. So if I'm working my way through here and I, I consider all that I've, I've been taught with this example of this healing, I've got no other conclusion to make than this is a man sent from God. And all he was doing was professing this belief. 
they didn't want to hear it because it challenged their power, it challenged their arrogance, it challenged their belief system. So like most people do when this happens, they just had him removed. You just get out of our presence because you don't belong here anymore. All this sets up the teaching that Christ had here that John wanted to highlight about vision and blindness. He used this blind man, in fact, made him blind from birth so that he could come to this point in his life where he could use this example and teach people about himself. And John John here provides the reason that this sign and this exchange was included in this testimony. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So he went to find him. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So he's still learning. He sees Christ as someone from God. So we're not quite there yet. We are. He is worthy of following much like Apollos was later, much like Paul was later, worthy of following. He's from God for sure, but there's still this work in progress. Who is he, Lord? You're clearly from God. Teach me more that I may believe in him. I want to believe in this Messiah. Who is he? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he Who is talking with you? It is me. Based off of everything that he had seen, everything that he had been taught, as the the Torah and the prophets all are going through his head that he's set there as a blind man, obviously can't read, so all he can do is listen. All he can do is hear. And he's heard these things because he said, we know, we know this, we know this. He now comes to the conclusion. Lord, I believe in you. And he fell and worshipped him. This is my savior. This is the Messiah. This is the one that was sent. This is the one they've been talking to us about, reading to us from the scrolls. This is him. This is him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see, and those who see may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus basically said, you said it, not me. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Let's touch, let's break this down just here for a little bit. What they didn't like was this uneducated, blind beggar trying to teach them inadvertently trying to teach them who Messiah was. So they cast him out. Recall that John is writing at the end of all of all of the, the writings here that have been written. He the, the apostles knew each other, don't know whether he had access to the, the letter to, in, in, to Corinth. He more than likely did. We don't know. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and see this concept at play here 
about Christ using this blind beggar. Verse 26 through 31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And he needed to bring them to nothing so that they could, event, they could they will eventually have the opportunity to see who he is. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Look what they were doing. They were glorifying themselves in the presence of their creator. He, he can't be him. It can't be him. You know what? Just get out of our sight. We don't, we don't need to see this. He's clearly a sinner because we understand everything. And he couldn't have done this on the Sabbath. Verse 30, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's what this blind man came to the point, where it was simply, this is Messiah. This is Messiah. He made me see and I have not seen a thing in my entire life. Let's go down to verse 39 and look at this here. we got just a few more minutes. Verse 39. For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And recall in context here that Christ is speaking to Israel. He is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and those who don't, who think they know, but clearly don't. And he uses this word judgment. He uses this word judgment. This judgment is the noun form, and we've talked about judgment, the three different uh, types of judging, discernment, uh, self-analysis, and condemnation. This word judgment is the noun form of the word krino. And Christ is saying, I came to condemn you. I came to condemn you so that you may not see. And that those who can see, those who are blind, can be made to see. Where do we get this from? This clearly goes back to Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 11. Let's go there and see how this beggar, this blind man who spent his life just begging for anything he could get, became a profound believer in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. And Christ tells them in their disbelief that he came to judge them. He came to cast condemnation on them. And we see this here in Romans chapter 11. We won't read too much of this, but in verse 5 through 10. Even so then, at this present time, Paul writes, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. 
think, as Paul's writing this, think of those rabbis and those Pharisees as what, as in their interaction. And they are fulfilling what Paul is saying here. They are acting, their, their behavior is made manifest, their, their, their thinking is made manifest in their behavior and they're fulfilling this. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. Not only did he make this blind man see, he was telling them, you think you can see? You are completely blind. You are completely blind. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. Let's bring this into context as to why this happened, and Paul explains it in verse 25 through 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And that's what we, where we can never get to. We can never be so self-confident that we rely on ourselves. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he is, as, and again, combine this with what we read in 1 Corinthians 1, he is taking this foolish, worthless, blind man. And caused he caused so much angst in the hearts and the minds of these, these rabbis simply by his process over the course of the minutes and hours after his healing to come to a full belief in the Messiah. A blind man receives sight, and those who think they can see are more and more proven that they are completely blind despite all the evidence around them. Despite all the evidence around them. Let's conclude in Jeremiah 5. As we conclude this portion of John, we'll conclude in Jeremiah 5. And this sign that John wrote about, this sixth sign where Christ healed a blind man, did so on the Sabbath while staying true to Torah, allowing them to go find your witnesses, to perform your washings in, the, in this pool, was done so to contrast what true blindness is versus what true sight is. A blind man can have true 2020 vision when he understands who Jesus Christ is. And those who are the smartest on the earth that could write the Torah out backwards and frontwards can be completely blind if they don't get it, if they don't have the heart and a full belief in this. And remember, this is what John was this is what John's testimony was about. So Jeremiah 5, we'll read verses 18 through 25. Nevertheless, in those days, and recall as we read this, they were fluent in this. They knew their scriptures. So when this blind man is so easily convinced, because all of a sudden, through this miracle, all the things that he has heard, taught, are starting to make sense. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. 
And it will be when you say, Why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, Just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob, and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding. You who have eyes and see not, you who have ears and hear not, do not fear me, says the Lord. Will you not tremble at my presence? That healed man trembled at his presence. When he realized who he was, he worshipped him instantly. The, the rabbis and the Pharisees who thought they could see, they were stone cold about this. Will you not tremble at my presence? Who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people, God's own people, these Pharisees that should know better, that they should have seen this coming. And despite, we can't even take John 9 without doing it in context. This isn't the first time they've heard these things. It's not the first time they heard about the Sabbath. It's not the first time they've seen healings. They continue this, and they completely turn a blind eye. Yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they, they, yet they cannot pass over it. But this, peop, this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. That's what he was in, trying to show them. That's what he was bringing out in them, showing their defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God. That's what the blind man said, the healed man. It's, this is Messiah. Let me worship. I'm worshiping before my creator right now. Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain with the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. There are none so blind as those who refuse to see. That is true blindness. When you refuse to see, you are blind. You can see clearly and have not have physical vision if you just come to accept, as John did, as John was going through here, as this blind man did, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through whom we may receive redemption. We'll close this portion. We'll do John, uh, we'll figure out when we do John 10 next. But if you would all like to rise, we'll bid adieu to our folks online. And then we'll turn the service back over to Pastor Adrian. Just join me in prayer. Father in heaven and to you, Messiah, our Lord God at his side, we are so very grateful that you have opened our eyes, that you have removed the scales from them, and that you have revealed yourselves to us your plan of salvation, the opportunity for redemption. We are so grateful that we can see, that we can see through your word. We're grateful for the testimonies that we have of of your prophets, the testimonies of the patriarchs, the testimonies of the apostles, and the testimony of you, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. We ask you not to, to help us not take this lightly. We ask you to help us not be like the blind man's parents who were scared to proclaim where this miracle came from. 
We thank you for the miracle of sight in our lives. We thank you that we can see. Please continue to help us see more clearly that we may not see that we make may see more clearly not see through a glass dimly but continue to reveal your word to us so that we may improve our vision so that we may see completely fully and fully commit to your way of life please be with those who have joined us online those who may be watching this later on we thank you for the opportunity to serve them in this way to provide this service we look forward to the return of your Son, to you, Jesus Christ, when you return, that we may join you in the work that there's left to do. Please account us worthy to be part of that group of first fruits. And please help us to continue to see who you are more and more each day. Thank you for this. We dismiss those that are online and wish them the best of the rest of the Sabbath and just be with us here locally as we finish our Sabbath here together. We thank you for this. We do so in Jesus Christ's most holy, righteous, and perfect name. Amen.